Today we begin a new four-part series, I'll get it out, uh, called Ecclesia, which is a, a fancy Greek word for the called out people of God. So these are people called out from the world to form a community called the church, to be this thing called the church. And ecclesia also means the assembly of people together, or the assembly of those called out people. So we are the ecclesia this morning. We are the called out people of God here to worship the living God and to share in fellowship together this morning. I've got good news and I've got a little bit of bad news for us this morning. Let's get the bad news over the, out of the way first of all. The Christian movement, the Christian movement around the world is in real, is in real danger. Um, there are really serious persecutions going on in the Middle East. The Middle East used to be a place that was highly populated by Christian people. Those people are largely now fleeing, they're in danger, there are tremendous persecutions and even martyrdoms in some of the countries of the Middle East. The other piece of the bad news is, and the reality of it is, in the Western world, which is generally considered to be Europe and North America, but especially in Europe and now increasingly so in North America, church attendance, participation in church has been declining every year. Now in the midst of that bad news, the reality that the church is going through some challenging times, by the way, God will never let the church fail, so there will be a renewal, we just don't know when. But in the middle of that decline, in the middle of, of the Western world and the struggles in the Middle East, the church in, in the Southern Hemisphere is, is doing incredibly well. In fact, if what missiologists, people who study missions will tell you, is that there's something called the 1040 window. And that's 10 degrees north latitude from the equator and 40 degrees south latitude of the equator. So Africa, South America, parts of Asia. The church is quite literally exploding. It's more vigorous than it's ever been. China has now at least 100 million believers, probably more, more than we even know. And the church there, despite persecution, is, is doing extremely well. Africa has become a Christian continent. This is an amazing reality in our time. On a much more superficial level, let me illustrate how much the church has changed here in America, at least from my story. How many of you grew up in a small town like I did? Just raise your hand if you grew up in a small town. Okay. So my family grew up in a small town in southern Oklahoma. When we went to church, we decided, my parents decided, we would go to one of the respectable churches in town. This was a place where nothing exciting ever happened. And that's where we wanted to go. We wanted to go to one of those places where people didn't do strange things. And so we went to this church, this tall, this tall steeple church right in downtown. And we went there and we um, worshiped there virtually every, every Sunday. I still have all these vivid image, images of what it was like to worship in that church. A lot of good things happened there, but there were respectable people there, which meant nobody got too excited about anything. We dressed in our Sunday best, and the church was utterly without any spontaneity at all. We didn't go to a bad church. We just went to kind of a dull church. Now, the pastor there was a great guy, 
But he did what was expected of a small town church, tall steeple pastor. He was especially critiqued for the way he did the three main things, baptizing infants, performing marriages, and officiating at funerals. In the business, we call that hatch, match, and dispatch. Anyway, <laughs> he, he hatched, he matched, he dispatched really, really well. And so everyone was happy with him. He did the traditional things of the church. The church was just fine. I remember going to church in my black suit because everybody had, all the guys had black suits and a tie and a little white shirt. And my parents, who were both raised through the Depression and the Dust Bowl, um, they were, let's just say frugal. I was going to say cheap. No, my parents were really cheap. Anyway, because I was growing so fast, and my brother too, we would go get suits that were about two sizes too big. And then we would wear those for a few months until they were a couple of sizes too small. But we were always in our black suits, there on the pews, listening to the organ. That's the one thing I really remember was this thunderous organ. People didn't sing much, but the organ was really impressive. And the hard wooden pews, some of you remember those hard wooden pews. And you sat there and you were, well, if you were my age, you were bored, frankly. And I remember my mother squeezing this trapezius muscle. There wasn't much of a muscle there, but he, she would squeeze it every time I wiggled. And so I learned that in church, that if you moved or did anything odd, you would find yourself in minor amount of trouble. Well, let me tell you about that church. That church is now gone. It's gone literally and it's gone figuratively. After we left, it emerged, it emerged with another church because it was on the decline. And then they eventually merged with a third church and my guess is, I don't know, but my guess is that church is out of business. It's gone. Now, in a way that's sad, although God always provides for his people, so there are other churches. But if we go back for a moment to the scriptures themselves and to the birth of the first church, we can get a sense of what the first church was like and how it existed with this dynamic sense of power. So let's look first at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. This is the good news of the day. The bad news is there are churches that are dying. The good news is it doesn't have to be that way. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Let me set the scene to that question. Jesus has yet to ascend to the Father. And so the early Christians have gathered together. They're still with Jesus. Jesus is in his post-resurrection body. Wondrous things have already happened. It's an amazing time, but none of the disciples could possibly know what's next. So they asked the question, Lord, is this the time? that you're going to reign and you'll restore the kingdom of Israel. He said to them, and this is a warning for us for the future, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This was the promise that Jesus gave them. Jesus was promising that power was coming to the church. Power was coming to these dispirited disciples who were in a fog, really, as to what had happened to them, what had happened to Jesus, and what was next. I mean, after all, what would you think if you were those early disciples and Jesus was about to leave? What would you think would be your future? You really wouldn't know. And so those first disciples would be promised, God says, that they would be able to, to pray God-sized prayers, that power would come to the church, that they would experience a oneness with one another that they could never have imagined. And he told them that they would be challenged and there would be difficulties, but that they would see thousands, thousands of new people coming into the life of their fellowship. And here's what their family looked like. Here's what the internal workings of that church looked like. From Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They had a life together. They were a part of one another's lives in a very significant way. They shared regularly in the Lord's Supper they shared in the apostles' teachings. They shared in this thing we call still fellowship. So maybe I'm nuts, but every now and then I look at Redeemer and I think, I'm seeing little signs of this kind of life. I'm seeing the existence of the Spirit motivating and moving people to love God evermore, to serve, to pray, to read the scriptures. I'm seeing that here. I'm seeing five generations of people worshiping God. I'm hearing the word proclaimed. Jesus is being lifted up. He's being remembered and celebrated in the sacraments of the church. We are doing the work of God by God's good grace. Haltingly, sometimes not so great and other times wonderfully, but God is alive and well and redeemer, and we're experiencing the fruits of the Spirit in our life together. This is something to celebrate. Amen. And now for the, some more good news, better news than what any of us could imagine. Just like the first church, we're called to share in the three big realities of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a community of God's people. The first of them is what we're doing this morning. We're worshiping together. Now, Allison led us earlier in a corporate confession of our sins, which I think is wonderful, particularly leading up to the Holy Supper of, of Christ. But let me make another con personal confession of my own. When I go to another church and I sit there as a person in the pews, I do just exactly what I tell you not to do. I start judging and thinking and evaluating and criticizing the service. So a couple of weeks ago, I was in Chicago in a worship service on a Sunday, and I sat there prepared to worship God, and all of a sudden, I'm judging the experience. 
First of all, they didn't have air conditioning. So that's a serious problem, right? I mean, how could any Christian worship in a place that didn't have air conditioning? It was uncomfortable. And secondly, the preacher, who was a good preacher, but he couldn't find the off-ramp. And he went way over time. And I'm thinking, man, I don't do that. I finish on time, you know. <laughs> and he would be just like driving down the freeway and there's an exit and he wouldn't take it. And he'd go another mile and he still wouldn't take the next exit and the next exit. He finally got off the highway, but I'm thinking, I'm hot and I'm tired and I'm judging the experience. When we worship together, we worship not as the judges, not as the one who are judging the performance of those who are on the platform, but as a people who worship together the living God for all the pluses and all the minuses of the people on the, on the platform. We're worshiping the living God, the one, the audience of one. The folks up here, like me today, are just prompters. We're here just to prompt you in the worship of God. You are not the spectators listening to the performers. You are the actors. You offer your hearts, souls, minds, bodies in praise of the risen Jesus. Again in Acts, from Acts chapter 2, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This was the normative life of the church. This was and this is the church. So the first thing we're called to do as the people of God at Redeemer Church is we're called to worship God. This is done together but it's also done in times of individual worship with God in our stillness times before God. But worship, particularly public worship, is the source and summit of the Christian life. This is what we're called to do. The second thing we're called to do is to grow. We worship and we grow. Growing is the teaching ministry of the church. Together we learn the scriptures. Together we walk the path as a follower of Jesus, and none of this is easy, but it's entirely natural that we would grow. Just like a child, it's natural for a child to grow and to develop. Christians are called to grow and to develop, to become who they were intended to be in the eyes of their creator. The goal of growth is real life change. So let me be clear about something. The goal of growth is not simply the acquisition of more knowledge. Even if it's great knowledge, even if it's about the Bible, even if it's the text of the Bible itself, the primary goal of the growing Christian is not the acquisition of more knowledge, though that's not a bad thing. The goal of growth in the Christian life is to connect with the Lord himself. It means to read the scripture, it means to pray, believing and trusting that God is in the pages of that book. He is in the words that have been written. He is to be encountered there. This is not an academic exercise. This is not primarily the acquisition of more information. This is an encounter 
with the living God. And that's what we're called to do. And so when we read scripture, when we're in our small groups, when we're studying in a classroom, whatever it might be, we're called not just to accumulate knowledge, but to connect with, to encounter the living God, to become that person that God has always wanted us to be. It's learning how to overcome the hurts and the habits and the hangups that we all have, that we've all accumulated over time. We don't have to be stuck in our own ways. We can grow and change. And that change happens because God by his spirit connects with us and pursues us in a loving relationship. God, God did not make this an optional exercise to grow. We need it and those around us needed. Finally, we worship, we grow, and we serve. I am constantly amazed at the amount of service that's taking place from the people of Redeemer. I am constantly amazed, led by our good friend Gretchen, and by a host of people who are finding their way into the service of the church and the service of God's people. I keep finding people who are volunteering for ministries outside these walls. And I'm so thankful for the people who volunteer for the ministries within these walls, for the people who are with our children right now, for the people who serve and make worship possible for all of us. For all of these things, we're grateful, but I've, I've continually heard from people in their service. When I ask them, why do you do that? I get the same answer back time and time again. The answer that comes back to me is, well, I enjoy serving and I'm glad I'm helping those people, but frankly, I'm getting more out of it than they are. And that's what you find when you connect with your own gifts, your own graces, your own spiritual gifts, and God has motivated you to serve somebody else, something happens. We get out of ourselves and we become a servant of those whom God also deeply, deeply loves. If you're new to Redeemer, you're gonna hear a lot about serving others. It's part of our DNA. It's woven into us now. It's not because we're extra spiritual, it's because God calls and sends us to others. This is God's work. Hopefully it's helpful to them. We know it's helpful to us. So we're called to worship, grow, and serve. And we celebrate that today. And we ask God during this time of Holy Communion to show us how we can do that evermore. Would you pray with me, please? Oh God, as we receive these elements and remember your presence is as near to us as it's possible to be, as we recognize that just as you were with those disciples and on that last night of your earthly life in your human body, you bless these elements and then you gave them to the disciples and their lives were stirred and impacted so much that this meal became a part of their everyday experience. God, may it be so for us that during this time of Holy Communion, 
we might bring to you our hang-ups, hurts, habits that need to change. Or we might bring to you simply an inquisitive mind that says, Lord, show me, show me what you want me next to do. Or we might come to this table and we say, Lord, show me who I am to serve. Lord, be with us in the breaking of the bread. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.